0: Today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is a new lingerie brand that uses more specific measurements to create better fitting bras. Test out a bra for free for 30 days before deciding if it's right for you. Join the Try Before You Buy program now at thirdlove.com/slash Vulture.
1: The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Vulture TV podcast. Matt Zoller-Seitz here, TV critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. I flew solo this week while my editor and co-host, Gazelle Amami, was busy coordinating coverage of the Vulture Festival in New York City, running the television section, and also battling the various and sundry supernatural forces that kept trying to overrun Sunnydale. She's quite versatile. I'm excited to welcome onto the podcast two distinctive American independent filmmakers, Amy Simons and Lodge Kerrigan. They co-wrote every one of the 13 episodes that comprise the Stars series The Girlfriend Experience, and they took turns directing. This is an extraordinary drama, confounding in some ways, and definitely not like anything you've seen. And that's really saying something, considering that it's based on a 2009 same-titled theatrical film that was directed by Steven Soderbergh and co-written by Brian Koppelman and David Levian, who went on to create the Showtime series Billions. Now, these folks have very little to do with this TV version of the Girlfriend Experience, though. Both the film and the TV show are about a high-end call girl who gets tangled up in a world of high finance. But beyond that, the remake is a whole different thing. Riley Keough stars as Christine, a Chicago law student. She works by day at the law firm Kirkland & Allen, and at night she serves an array of moneyed clients. Now, that description makes it sound like something that might have aired after midnight on Cinemax in about 1997. But this show is very much an art object in the tradition of 1960s European art cinema. It's got a heroine who is a bit inscrutable at times, a narrative that expresses itself almost entirely in terms of behavior and action rather than through exposition, and filmmaking that favors atmosphere, visuals, sound effects, and music instead of relentlessly driving the audience from one plot point to the next, which is pretty much how most TV is made now. I asked Lodge Kerrigan and Amy Simons, who also co-stars on the program as Christine's sister, to come on the show and talk about the whole first season, the subject matter, the world the show depicts, the style, the philosophy of it. We're going to focus pretty tightly on two episodes. One of them is episode nine, where a sex tape of Christine and a client gets released to the general public and changes her life instantly. The other episode we're going to talk about in depth is the finale, episode 13, which is one of the damnedest things I've seen in the 20 years that I've been a television critic. I would put it up there with Ozymandias from Breaking Bad and the final episode of The Sopranos for the way that it expresses everything the show was about, narrative and aesthetically, and also for the way that it demands that the audience engage with the characters, the story and the themes in a way that is much more active than television's norm. There are points on first viewing of this finale where you do not know what you're looking at or what exactly you're supposed to make of it, and then you go back and watch it again and again. And that's all by design, I think. Hopefully the filmmakers can help us unpack the mysteries a bit without erasing them. Amy and Lodge, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, thanks for having us. So I wanted to start by just kind of talking about the show in general. This was a film that was directed by Steven Soderbergh, one of the executive producers of this show, uh, back in, I guess, 2009. It really doesn't have a whole lot in common uh, with this series, except for just some of the general ideas, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Stephen uh, approached us, and the mandate was just to take the title um, and start over. You know, the, the whole goal is to do an original series, and the, the actual WGA credit is suggested by the movie. So really, it has very little in common with it.
2: Right. And there were no uh, kind of marching orders or even notes beyond that?
1: Uh, no, the only other uh concern is not to set it in New York City because then people might confuse you know might might think that you are more connected than they are uh but that was really
2: it so really the only the only thing they have in common is the title and the fact that the main character is a sex worker, correct yeah. That's it. And I guess an obsession with money, maybe. But one of the things that intrigued me so much about it was I didn't know any of this as I was going into it. So it started out and I thought, oh, this is a more in-depth look at the life of of a call girl. And then the financial stuff got woven in in a way that almost made it seem like it was turning into a a financial thriller or a psychosexual thriller from the 80s mixed with a financial thriller. And then somewhere around the midpoint, it turns into something else. And by the time we got to the end, I felt like I had I had seen like five movies, <laughs> almost. Great. And, and was this part of the design going forward? Did you did you think here in the modes that we're going to move through, or or did that suggest itself as you were trying to figure out how do we get thirteen episodes out of this? I
3: think. Through the writing process, what we were trying to do is, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of, like, tropes or expectations when you're writing a character that goes into sex work, and what we wanted to do was take all of those expectations and some of those tropes and sort of flip them on their head. So using that anxiety that we knew the audience was going to uh, bring to something like this and showing a character who is, is completely in control whether or not you, you agree with every, all the decisions that she's making. You
1: know, we were also focused on her journey on her choice, the basic choice that she has to make, which is which which life does she choose in the end? There's a certain just simple logic that if you enter the world of escorting, it's going to necessitate that you compartmentalize your life, and then to what point do those... Different lives start to spill over into each other and start to collide. And what happens when they start to collide? And then ultimately, what choice, you know,
2: does the character make? I, I certainly don't want to, you know, minimize the specifics of the show in any way when I say this. But there was a point. Uh, some, I guess, it was in episode ten, which is really the aftermath of episode nine, when the when the tape, when the sex tape, starts circulating in her office, and one by one, all of her coworkers are seeing it, and rather than I thought that she was going to flee, she was going to break down something, but instead it's almost like a scene in a science fiction movie where they fire a nuclear weapon at Godzilla to, to destroy it and it only makes it stronger. Like she Suddenly she sort of takes this and it makes her, I don't know, it's almost like she's lost any fear that she has or any shame that she has and suddenly she's scaring the shit out of everybody. Sure. I mean, we, you
1: know, Amy and I were also really interested in writing a character, you know, like we were it really, instead of writing somebody who's identifiable or even likable or somebody who talks about their feelings a lot, um, we wanted to write somebody who had certain qualities that aren't necessarily traditionally attractive, you know, obviously she's very intelligent, but she's also extremely selfish and manipulative and, uh, complicated, uh, and contradictory and, um, so we were just trying to write somebody who's really strong and very intelligent, and goes after what they want, and is very unapologetic about it.
2: And at the same time, though, her character and and Riley's performance is there's an opaque quality to it, and and by that I mean that I often find myself reading reactions or emotions into her that turn out not to be the the ones that she's feeling, and I feel like there's sometimes there's some intentional misdirection of the audience.
3: Yeah, I mean. It- I think maybe not just misdirection, but I think I think we I think both Wild and I can agree, or or at least I'm, I, I I I hate exposition, and to make something really mysterious and interesting, at least in my opinion, is is just to follow a character where where we're learning about her just by her actions, as opposed to you know ha- having her just have these monologues about how she's feeling and. And, you know, if she's worried about this, I just find that much more fascinating. And, and, it, and it adds to, you know, play, again, going back to like playing along with these tropes, this, this sort of like mystique that we've built around women who are sex workers, of, of that there's a mystique to them. And I think that that sort of adds to it where, where we're not, we, we don't know why she's doing what she's doing. We're just watching her do it. And it, it sort of adds to the thrill of it.
1: One of the most exciting elements of directing is when somebody, an actor, gives a performance that you don't quite expect, you don't think it's coming, or that there's real life in front of the camera. Um, And in the same way in life, you know, like people reveal themselves in many different ways, and you have to try to decipher from the various cues that they're giving, whether it's behavioral, you have to kind of parse it and and go through and make connections and try to figure out what's going on. And I think that gives a certain magnetism, you know, to hopefully to the show, but also for a viewer to watch it. They have to decide and decipher for themselves. And so we ask them to become more active in the process with the hope then that it becomes less uh, predictable
2: related to that is the question of um, how accurate a depiction of of sex workers is this, and you know, and i 'm sure you know that there 's been some criticism of it for not being accurate that this is not the way that somebody like her would behave. she would be warmer she would she would be more uh, uh, attentive to her client 's emotional temperature, and so forth, like there are times where there 's a sort of a distanced quality to the character, um, but I wonder how high on your list of concerns is making an accurate depiction of this job that she does?
1: Um, you know, I, I read somewhere that um, somebody wondered if meth dealers were defying at Breaking Bad in the same way that sex workers were defying at Girlfriend Experience, which made me kind of laugh. Um, certainly, it's not our intention to represent the sex trade by any means. You know, we were focused just on one character. Um, but at the same time, I'd like to say that I'm sure different providers, and we did, have, we spoke to a number of providers, a number of clients, we met with a number. Uh, we had two consultants on the show were both at different points in their lives, sex workers. Um, and what we gathered from it, one thing that we gathered is that different sex workers have a multitude of different experiences. So to try to reduce it to this is really the the, the true, real experience of what a sex worker is and things like that um, you have to be warm and gregarious and funny and laughing, I, I just... Certainly, that wasn't our intent. It wasn't what we were following. But I also question whether that's really true. That may be the norm, but I'm sure there are, ex- there are, there are exceptions to
3: that. I think also, I mean, if you, in, in the hands of different filmmakers, they'd be fascinated by, you know, other aspects of sex work. But if you take a look at, like, you know, both and my directing work outside of The Girlfriend Experience, we're much more into an experiential. Films and, and mood, and and taking viewers on a sort of a ride, as opposed to being so specifically like accurate. Um, and in narrative filmmaking, in it's it's the director's job to choose how to represent something or choose not to show something, in order to you know take the viewer on a very specific experience. We weren't trying to make a documentary or or to be like this is what sex work is really like. It was more to experience this ride with this one particular woman that enters the world of escorting as opposed to making a statement about all escorts in general.
2: To tie that into this idea of experiential filmmaking, uh, the idea of the viewer having an experience, having an emotional experience, having a visceral experience and not necessarily knowing exactly what to make of it. I, that, I feel like that's already a recurring subject in this conversation. We're only a few minutes into it. Can you talk about that a little bit more? The, your philosophy as writers, as filmmakers, because you're very different filmmakers. And Shane Carruth, who, of course, provided the score, which I love, uh, has his own sort of vibe. But I feel like you three and Steven Soderbergh all at least share seem to share a philosophy of what, of what good is.
3: It's hard for me to say, like, what specific kinds of movies that I like, but going back to the expositional thing, I'm, I'm a big proponent of show, don't tell. I'd rather just watch, like, through action or or visuals as opposed to somebody telling me what they're about to do or what the plot line is. It's not necessarily, I like plot and I like narrative, but, I, but it's more, I, I want to be, I want to feel something through, you know, this medium as opposed to, being told how I'm supposed
1: to feel. I couldn't agree more. Instead of, you know, like, instead of talking about something, it's far more interesting to show it. And it's far more interesting to show people's behavior and try to decipher what their behavior really means and why they're doing something and not necessarily always be right. But I find that's really magnetic and engaging. And so from a writing point of view, I think that requires much more of an audience. But if an audience engages with it, I find then, as an audience member, you don't know what's going to happen, and that's the most thrilling part of all. When you go into an experience and you can't, you're not sitting there watching some schematic show where you know exactly how it's going to evolve.
3: I also like, you know, I, I really love movies where we're not trying to make a judgment call on us as human beings. We're more sort of experiencing the world like, like aliens, like, why do human beings do this? You know, and, and not trying to be like, they're right or wrong. It's just more, you know, more coming from an objective or trying to be objective point of view of in a morality sense. I remember sitting in my D.I., and Stephen popped in for a little bit, and he was watching one of the sex scenes, and this is exactly sort of to make that point. He was like, why do we do this? It's so weird. Like, it's so alien. I guess that's a, a very good example of, of, like, what I want out of cinema is to, to approach us, like an a- alien approaching a hum- like human life form, in a way, <laughs> as opposed to coming at it in a moralistic standpoint.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting what is it that... As human beings, we cannot accept what it is to be human. You know, if we're in denial, or we're scared by it, or terrified by it, and we have to shut down some experiences and go. We can't look at it. We can't experience. it. I mean, obviously, there are extreme edges where you know there's extreme violence, and I'm not suggesting that we embrace that. But there's so many areas of human behavior we just re- our society just rejects. Our
2: is sex one of those areas? Sure. Sure.
1: I mean, you you look at it now, like, you know, look at at bathrooms and the issue that all of a sudden we're obsessed with, you know, as a nation, which who can use what bathroom and what gender people really are and how we have to predetermine that and control it. But you look at all the elements in certain institutions, you know, like from the very beginning. Your, your individuals are told that they're not good enough. That you really shouldn't be yourself. You should be somebody else, like be like Mike, or be a sports figure, or if you're religious, you know you're not good enough. You're, you're sinful. You're, you'll be rejected. You. There's this is constant pressure that you cannot be a human being.
2: That sounds like an, a description of episode, of what happens in episode nine. This idea of Christine as somebody who is uh, fighting against what she actually wants to be. And I feel like at the end, she's gotten closer to being her true self. Uh, And this is not like necessarily the kind of uplifting, uh, you know, happy face sort of narrative that we associate with a story like that. But at at some point in episode nine, which I watched watched it twice, and and the first time just to experience it, because it's really tense. And the second time to sort of try to grasp what was actually happening at the level of narrative and psychology, And I feel like what's happening in that episode is she's burning it down.
0: Why do you want me to delete all of our correspondence? Is it because you're worried I'm going to tell someone about us?
2: I'm not worried. You're going to do what you're going to do.
3: Does Megan know? Did you tell your wife about us? I don't understand why you won't talk to me. I don't know what I did wrong. I miss spending time with you.
2: There is nothing between us. Who's Corda? What'd you say?
3: Corda, the shell company we're talking to Ben
2: Holden about. Stay the fuck away from me. You are fucking insane. Like she never actually wanted to be there. She never actually wanted to be in that office. She almost she she had a problem with lateness and absence. She was distracted the whole time she was there. Clearly she never really wanted to be there, and this is in a way it's like a blessing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you know. I don't think any that's ever really clear for for people in the moment when they do burn something down. You know what I mean? Like, like just even in relationships, the way you you destroy them without really meaning to. Like, no one sets <laughs> out to be like, I'm going to burn this relationship to the ground. They just do it, sort of subconsciously. Yeah. And I think I think in in this way uh, that that office, like, because she's so controlling, because she's so compartmentalized. I think it's also this leap of like. Of if she can control and win and be like, enclosed in these walls, because you know, it takes place all in this, this office. If she can do that, if she can control and stay in there as long as she can and control the environment, she doesn't have to go out and, and face the chaos that's outside of those walls. And so she's, like, looking for, like, she's grasping, you know, whether you agree with what she's doing or not, just sort of grasping for the last bits of control she can have. She also just hates losing, you know, she's (laughs) a character that will not lose.
2: Yes, yes. Well, and there is a sense in which she's, you know, the, the there's a fire in the barn and she pours kerosene on it.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: I think it's also exactly. it, it also kind of tell you know this idea of the eternal revolution and tying into an idea of work. You know, there's a, she's in a state of conflict because she has to choose which direction really to go, and then when she makes that choice, then the conflict is really over, and then she has to come to terms with having made that choice. And in part, I think it's it's. It's a commentary on work, you know, like when you're young and you imagine what a job will be or you imagine what a career would be. In a lot of ways, you have no real understanding of what it is. And you're filled with this, you know, ambition and drive and you want to be the best at something. And then when you finally arrive at it, you know, it's a job and you may get satisfaction from it. I'm not saying you don't, but not quite on the same level. It's when you, you know, you're doing it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And I think at the very end of the show, you see Christine completely in control. I mean, she's totally dominating that situation in terms of the character directing the other players in it. Yeah, and
3: I, and I do think. I mean, I think also in that in, in that vein of her decision at the end too, it's like she is somebody who doesn't like uncomfortable feelings. She likes to be in control, and so when she's feeling, you know, it is very traumatic what happens and. Um, to her, I think it's very traumatic, and the way she like I think it really did have an effect on her. But she felt those feelings. She she put them in a box, shoved them away, and she doesn't want to look at it again. Her decision to go full force into um, high end escorting, and not for at least this particular part of her story, is a compartmentalization of like, you know what, that didn't work out. Now fuck that. I'm gonna go. And, and dive right in, like deep, like like headfirst into this other thing because I can control that, and I don't want to face this other part of my life because I I don't like those feelings that's making me feel.
1: That's, a, that's Some people though, I mean, some people just continue to blow it up throughout their lives. <laughs>
3: <laughs> or people just live in delusion. Yeah,
2: <laughs> that's the that's the Don that's the Don Draper story on Mad Men.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. like
2: every, every six to nine months he blows it all up.
1: <laughs> but it's really for me, it's really interesting, too, when, you're, when you're, your goal is to achieve something, and it's very, very hard to achieve it for whatever reason. It takes an incredible amount of skill, intelligence, uh, a lot of politics may be involved, or it may be something like you have to be comfortable with physical or an emotional intimacy with a stranger or stuff. Like that. But whatever it is when you finally achieve it then it doesn't quite have the same amount of power to it.
2: Well, that seems like a natural segue to to pivot into a full-tilt-boogie discussion of the finale, which i got to set the scene for you here. I watched this. My brother came to visit me in New York from Switzerland, and he said, do you have any shows that I'm not going to see over there for a while? And I said, well, let's watch this. We watched the entire thing in two days, and we watched the finale three times. And by the third time I was analyzing this thing, like it was the Zeppruder film and and I, and I, I I might be completely off base about this, but I feel like at that point it almost becomes like the final scene in blow up where the hero is watching these mimes play tennis (laughs) like it's like it's you know what's happening the actions are actually happening and yet they also seem to be a commentary on everything that we've seen before and you talk about this idea of her taking control of the experience all through the show we see her kind of performing a certain idea of femininity for money and at the same time a lot of these guys and one woman who are in her orbit are kind of performing an idea of masculinity as seen in the financial world and all through the show you've got these mirrors you've got video monitors You've got cell phones, uh, uh, you know, surveillance footage, and she watches herself. She even watches herself masturbate. And this video of her circulates. It kind of turns her into it's almost like in a weird way. It's like her breakthrough at the same time that she burns everything down with it. And then we get to this final episode. And what happens? We see her rehearsing. We see her trying to speak French we see her. It's almost like she's repeating lines. And then when she gets to, and then she has that uh, rendezvous with this one client. And then she meets with this other guy, Gordon. That's his name? Yeah. And and then the I think the first time we see Gordon, he's opening the shades and it looks like curtains are rising on a stage. And like that apartment, it's almost like you shoot it like it's a sound stage, And at a certain point, it seems like Gordon is in addition to being the client he's also uh, the director or the writer trying to make these characters do what he wants them to do and it's like part of his sex thing is that he wants these actors to play this damn scene in a in a way that satisfies him so that he can get off where were you i was at lunch with cynthia Hmm. well you didn't tell me that you're lying aren't you you were with derek I want to know, did he fuck you? Yes. Did you just had sex with him? Did you suck his cock? Did he come in your mouth?
3: Yeah, he did. And then I wanted more, so I got him hard again and fucked him.
2: Is that what you want to hear? Who is it? And then, I guess about, uh, you know, eight or ten minutes from the end of the thing, the director completely loses control of the scene, and she takes over and starts directing the scene, right?
3: I'm so glad you're here. I was worried for a second you weren't going to come.
2: I'm glad I'm here also.
3: I couldn't stop thinking about you.
2: I couldn't stop thinking about you, too.
3: I've never felt this way before. Me neither. I'm
2: falling in love with you, but I don't know what to do. I think you should leave him. Don't look at him. you need a moment? Yeah, sorry.
3: Can you give us a second? We just need to get on the same page. Okay. Can you shut the door? Is there anything I can do to make you feel comfortable?
2: No, I'll be fine.
3: Okay. We can just
2: jump right in if
3: the talking is throwing you.
2: Yeah, yeah, that might help.
3: Okay, ready? Good to go.
0: Gordon!
2: Yeah? We're ready. Am I just imagining all of this? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and not to take anything away from what's actually happening at the level of the, of, of the characters, because I do think, you know, I don't think this is like, oh, it was all a dream or anything like that, but is there, some, there, is there or is there not something sort of extra textural, extra dramatic happening in this finale?
1: Well, I think, it, I think it's it's you're reading it on multiple levels, and that's absolutely accurate. You know, it, it really is a performance. And to this point where, like, professionals drop in, and not only in the escort world, but in many other areas of life, and you establish a certain degree of professional intimacy. But how intimate are you really? You know, and, like, how much of it is really a performance and how knowable or unknowable are people in, 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 at the very end of the day. And particularly for Christine, where she, throughout the course of the show, as an escort, and so I'm sure it applies to every escort, when she's in these, uh, providing the girlfriend experience and providing emotional, particularly emotional intimacy, she's really in control of it. She decides how intimate she's going to be and how intimate she is. And so she gets to play a role. Um, whereas the clients are also I think to some degree playing a role because she 's a fantasy of what they project onto her um, so what was it that Prous said that it 's uh it 's the imagination not the other person that allows you to fall in love, and I think that 's really apt for this and so really when we in staging it, I really wanted to make it seem like it was a play
2: I was extremely confused at first when when he says, "Where were you?" And she says, I was at lunch with Cynthia. And he says, you didn't tell me that. Where did you go? And then we go into this scene where it's like, it almost sounds like they've had this conversation before. Like they're running lines from a play that's been performed on this stage in, in the past, almost. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it is all rehearsed because they're playing out of fantasy.
3: Yeah, she, he's probably told her, you know, in the writing of it, that the, the cuckold fantasy is like, they call it the intellectual fantasy. It's a fantasy where either men who are usually married want their wives to have sex with other men. And part of the, the attraction to it is the humiliation. They say it like drives them wild. you know. Um, and it's a lot of like intellectuals that like it, and they don't know why. They, it just is part of, like, part of their sexual drive is, is sort of linked with jealousy. And so that is something that's been asked of, of escorts to perform is this cuckold fantasy. And what's really interesting is that then, like, to talk about, like, intimacy and being close to somebody, that means that the man has to describe to the escort, like, exactly, like, what his fantasy is and what the things that they're going to go over. So there is sort of a script, or at least a loose script, that, like, they probably came up with before the scene starts. Um, which is really kind of comical, but, but also it's very intimate.
2: <laughs> well, I, I wondered if maybe the, 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 in that scene, that, that, that first conversation that they have, I wondered if, we, if indeed we're watching a drama on this little stage, that maybe it's a semi-improvised drama, like he's maybe they're constructing this the, the scene on the spot, because the details of what he's saying, you know, what happened as she tells him what happened, she's describing exactly what we just saw a few minutes ago in that episode. He's saying, I need a scene, I need some lines, and she's supplying them based on her experience. She's like an, you know, an actress who's been asked to improvise without a script.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think it is. I mean, it, obviously it was all scripted, but what the roles of playing is very much, I would imagine an improvisation, you know, where he starts attacking her out of jealousy or right out of the gate, and she has to keep feeding that, and in ways that which which really aren't expected from an audience's point. of view. You wouldn't expect her to you know, to add fuel to the fire, but that's because ultimately it is a fantasy.
2: I wanted to ask you both about two particular lines that really stuck in my head. One of them is the moment where Gordon reaches out to touch her when, when the guy's, you know, mounting her on the couch, and she says, right. don't touch me.
1: Right, because she's being physically intimate with the other men, which is basically the subtext. Is what she, One, he wants his fantasies to be humiliated. And to feel, you know, an immense degree of pain, the emotional and psychological pain. And and in order to do that, the construct between them, the the contract between the three, is that she is in love with the other man. So if she's in love with the other man, then she is rejecting Gordon.
2: And also he's not there. I mean, in in the context of this as a scene, he's not there.
1: He, exactly,
2: and if he so, so, if he's there and he touches her, then that that ruins the, the the emotional reality of the scene.
1: Well, no, that you know, I disagree a little bit. I think they're playing well, both. I think on one level they're <laughs> playing that he's not there. Like for instance, when they lie down after post-coital and, uh you know, and she says, I'm in love with you. And he goes, what do you want? The other lover goes, what do you want to do? And she says, I want to, you know, I don't know, get a house. I want to leave him. Are you sure? Yeah, you know, that's all meant to be very intimate and private between the two of them. But at the same time, they also know, obviously, he's there and they're playing it to him. And they include him very much in their reactions. If you look at Christine, she's looking, playing to Gordon the whole time and trying, you know, like smiling at him when she's, uh, you know, performing oral sex on, on the other guy and, you know, throughout. I mean, that's just one example. But throughout.
3: I think that's the key to, like, this fantasy, too, and sort of writing it is it's like, the rules are, are you know, it it is a fantasy, so it, it's sort of like dream-like in this way where he's there but he's not there, like any sort of weird fantasy, you know. And in reading and and researching that, we we found that there was this like both this sort of engagement and disengagement in these in these fantasies that that like kind of replicate a dream in a way,
2: right. And the other line, another line I wanted to ask you about was her saying, "Do you need a moment?"
1: Because it's uh, the, the, I think the experience is just too intense, you know, for the other for the male escort. He's he's gotten into a situation where he has to decipher very quickly, really, what's going on with the subtext. Is I'm sure he's been made aware of it before he arrives through a phone call or discussion, but it's one thing you know, to be informed of it and it's another thing to really experience somebody's energy. And I think Gordon who I'd like to say we wanted to name John the, the character's name is Gordon Sirica and we wanted to name him initially John Sirica, the the judge in uh, all the president's <laughs> men but, uh, we we couldn't we couldn't clear it. <laughs> oh, we yeah.
3: started yeah. looking through all the president's men and, and naming people, yeah. Yeah
2: um, as so, part of uh, your Alan J. Pakilla uh, exactly. Marathon before it, you shot this. Exactly. exactly, we
1: thought that in particular would be really funny.
2: In, and she says, "Can you give us a second? We just need to get on the same page."
1: Yeah, the other escort, the male escort, has is kind of rattled by the intensity of Gordon, and so he needs time. You know, he starts to lose confidence, and then ultimately that translates not only in needing a moment to get up to but also the fact that he can't, have a, you know, he doesn't get an erection.
3: I think that, that, that in general, like, sort of his reaction to the whole thing is also sort of a theme that that we were playing around with in, in the show, too, is there's a difference between being curious or talking about it and actually doing it. So it's like, fine, like, you know, he's probably, probably like Lodge said, he's probably prepped about the situation but actually doing it is a whole other story.
2: Well, if this guy is if he's wandering into this for the first time and he's never been he's never been around her or around Gordon, I would imagine he's a bit like an actor who's never worked with Robert Altman before. You know, and it's like what the hell kind of movie are we making here? There's no script and, you know.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is a new lingerie brand that uses a more tailored measurement system to create better fitting bras. Shopping for bras can be a huge pain, not to mention the search to find out what your true bra size even is. Third Love offers a Try Before You Buy program where you can test out a bra for free for 30 days before deciding if it's right for you. All you have to do is pay for shipping. You can take the tags off, wear it, and wash it to really try it out. If you love it, keep it, and they'll charge your card. If you don't, send it back for free, and your card will not be charged. Don't know your size? An online fit specialist will help you find the perfect fit. Go to thirdlove.com slash vulture to get started.
2: How did you write together? Were you in the same room? Did you collaborate remotely? How did that work?
1: Uh, Initially, we collaborated remotely because we were both working. I was directing... um The Killing, I think, at the time that Amy was acting. So initially, we wrote a 15-page treatment that wasn't a a traditional novel at all, but kind of just gave the overall arc of the season Mm -hmm. and some ideas of the characters, of the kind of characters that would be in it. And Stephen went and shot that, and both stars and Cinemax are really interested, but they both asked if we would write. We wanted to go right, Stephen wanted to be greenlit and go go right in. Um, so they asked if we'd write two episodes and Amy and I wrote them really quickly, actually quicker than they could execute the contract. So she even said, Great, you know, we'll see who's the most interested and in what the best, you know, the optimum circumstances are. So we ended up going with stars and then um we were both in the same city, I think New York at that point. And we broke all the episodes on a big board, you know, with each episode, like literally each scene on a card for each episode. And then we split up the episodes one by one. So we'd write episode one or episode two or at that point episode three. And, you know, Amy would do one half, I'd do the other. And then we got together together. In the rewrites, in the same room, which was Stephen gave us an office in his editorial suites, and uh, and then we went over line by line, and you know had some very intense, great discussions about you know about everything, and really, so really, it is co-written in the best sense, you know, in the complete sense.
3: And I mean, and that's that's sort of why the even though you can pick up on some directorial differences between our episodes, but the reason that it feels so cohesive. Is in traditional television the revolving directors that come in? They have these tone meetings of how to fit into you know the world of the show. But essentially, since we were the writers' room, that was the, the those discussions slash arguments would <laughs> became our tone meeting. So by the end, it was like we when we were writing each scene, we would have those discussions of what it looks like, what we would how we would shoot it. Da, 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 you know, it, it became sort of essentially a way for us to get on the same page of how this, like overall, this show looks without, you know, stri- like stripping both Laws and I of our freedom to direct however we wanted to, to direct.
2: I had read an interview with you uh, where you alluded to this, that there were certain tonal differences maybe in, in episodes or scenes, but I really didn't detect that. I mean if you if you ask me who directed what I'm usually pretty good about being able to tell that and I I really don't have any idea here.
3: It's really funny. You know, I mean I, I, that's that's what's amazing is, is I really think that writing process was key to that and I, but here's the thing that that is I'm surprised it's not like wildly different cuz I never came to lot set uh, aside from the day I acted on <laughs> that and then, and he and he he came one day to my set and that's because we had overlapping um, scenes from episode nine and 10. Um, and so he just came to see how I we was shooting stuff. But, but for the most part, we just, we just trusted that the other person was going to, you know, we just trusted the other person. It was part of giving respect and allowing the other person to do what we respected them. You know, they're capable and smart and whatever. So I, I'm surprised it's actually not wildly different <laughs> to be honest.
1: Yeah. And I also think, you know, like, I think Amy's absolutely right. It, it's We co-wrote everything. So we knew the material really well. And I think someone probably saw that we share some aesthetic sensibilities in our approach to work. I mean, obviously we're very different, but I think in our approach and what we like and what we don't like, like we prefer to observe human behavior rather than you know like convey information through exposition or through dialogue and things like that, so that really the 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 production was Really seamless and, and very smooth. I mean, we were we went through and chose everything together. We choose locations together, or we cast together. Or we you know have meetings with the production designers together, mm-hmm. the prop people, everyone. And so, it really, in the end, we had so we had such an understanding of the world that was so clear that it became very um, smooth. And and like you say, I mean, it's just a tremendous respect for each other. So, you know, and I think that to get the best work, you have to allow people. To the freedom to do their work, like Stephen does with Amy and myself. You know, he said, here's an idea, you know, go with it. I also think it's human nature. It's part of our DNA that we always want to connect stuff. There's always cause and effect. We think everything is linked. We're totally searching for narrative links. So I think that if you put, if you, you put all those episodes together and you actually examine them one after the other, which ones Amy directed and which ones I did, you could tell. The difference, but when you're just watching it as a viewing experience, it does seem seamless.
2: One last question that I had for both of you: We've established here, among other things, that we have a show that is more about action than exposition. Uh, one in which you can sort of, as a viewer, make up your own mind as to what the show means, what it's saying to you, what the heroine is feeling, what she wants. Like the, a lot of these things are kind of open to interpretation. The show's not handing you anything. One of the things that I feel like it's also not handing you is the question of who sent that video. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten question after question from people who follow me on Twitter, who sent the video, who sent the video, who sent the video. Did, we, did you tell us that and I just missed it?
3: No, no, it's intentionally sort of, you know, that's that's intentionally sort of for people to play around with. Even in the writing process, we talked about that as like, you know, we need to know when we're writing it so that we can have the, the so we know where we're going but it is really fun for people to sort of not be sure if she sent it, if Jack sent it, if Aaron and David got a hold of it somehow and they sent it. You know, um, I think that that's sort of a fun you know, thing for people to toss around and, and, and keep viewing it.
1: I think it's a reflection, too, just that the different characters in it all have their own motivations and reasons for potentially sending it out. And so when you don't tie everything up for everyone – then again, it kind of hopefully it gets uh, a higher level of engagement and involvement.
3: Yeah. I mean and that goes with like the construction of the show too, is is we you know, we set it up in this way where it feels like you're spying on her. In in order to maintain that, you can't really answer that question because she doesn't know. And the characters that we I guess what to say is is that she doesn't know, other people wouldn't know, and to feel like you're spying on her you can't really answer that question because it's sort of this unknown mystique of of all these things adds to the feeling that you're spying because you don't get all these answers. You just get these glimpses of how people are behaving, almost like a National Geographic video of, you know, watching from far away and trying to be like, oh, I think they're behaving like this and making assumptions of how these animals work.
2: It goes back to that idea of aliens watching us behave. Exactly. They they might have they might have a very different interpretation of what we do and why we do it because they they're they're only getting little pieces, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Well, don't ever uh, don't ever tell people who sent the tape because otherwise you'll be in the David Chase situation where you'll have to explain it like every six months.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's that's also the reason we're not telling anyone. <laughs>
2: That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Amy Lodge, thank you. Sure. Thank thank you. you for
1: your interest. Thanks, Matt. It was a real pleasure.
2: And that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. You can reach me on Twitter at Matt zoller Thank you for listening.